we are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. Affectionately known as Beefy, Kieran Blake spent the first half of his life as a professional cricketer in Wales and in Australia. His sporting career was cut short after an injury that never made a full recovery. He was propelled into starting his own manufacturing business, settled into a relationship and a new baby. Hard work was never an issue for Beefy, but one thing after another, his business went under. His relationship fell apart and Beefy was left in his early 40s house-sharing. Having hit rock bottom, he took an idea that he had briefly mentioned to a few mates over the years, and with nothing to lose, he made it his reality. The passion project 365 Days of Sports saw him get to 31 countries and on 122 flights. From Formula One to Tour de France, jousting, e-pulling, the Greenland Eskimo Olympics, this is how one man took down the Guinness World Record for the world's biggest sports fan. This is Beefy's story. Hello, morning, how are you? Good morning, how are you? Very good, very good. Hey, thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday morning for a chat. Oh, no problem. But yeah, major, major sports fan, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I think it was inbred in me in an in a early age and I've just carried that on. Yeah, you certainly have, all the way to Australia. So look. People Are Amazing, the podcast uh, is all about resilience and inner strength with changing careers from, you know, being an athlete to now being a full-fledged world record-holding sporting enthusiast. But I can't wait to hear all about that. But uh, to kick us off, how about you give us a bit of a rundown of of who you are and, you know, where you're from and over to you. Yeah. No, that's it. uh, My name's Kieran Beefy Blake. Most people know me as Beefy. If I told them my name is Kieran they wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. So it's a bit, a bit of a strange uh, moniker, but it's, yeah. I mean, we do a bit of, I do a bit of media nowadays and yeah, everyone knows me by Beefy. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know. It's a strange one, but uh, it, I live by it. It's great. But I grew up in Wales um, in a very sporting family. Um, I played soccer as a kid and cricket. My mum and dad were always involved in sport and, I think from about the age of three, um, there wasn't a weekend that went by that I wasn't at a sporting event or taking part or watching or whatever. So kind of from a very early age, I grew up around the sports world. My mum was heavily involved in athletics. She was the Welsh national kind of team manager and team coach uh, for athletics, track and field, road running, cross country, everything. So I grew up in the athletics world um, and my dad always played soccer and table tennis and every sport so I was in that environment from a very early age um I went away to a kind of a top well, I guess a top school in Wales so I went away to boarding school so I kind of lived away from home since I was 11 um kind of fended for myself a little bit but um huge sporting school played a lot of sports through that school played first team rugby cricket uh football squash all that stuff um but I was, my main sport was cricket. Um, so I kind of had it in my mind from when I was about 15, 16, I wanted to be a professional cricketer. Uh, I kind of got that chance just before I turned 18. 
there's a professional team in Wales, Glamorgan. They play first-class cricket. Um, so I went to kind of pre-season training with them. And was that was the first step in becoming a professional cricketer. Unfortunately, not long into that season, I uh, my back went out. And that was kind of the end of my professional cricket career at 18. I kind of had to reassess. But being at a top school, I managed to stay in school, do my exams, get qualifications and go, go away to university. So um, that was a kind of a, I don't know, whether it's a sliding doors moment or, or whatever, but, you know, it kind of made me reassess. But I mean, the most important thing, obviously, is to go away, get a qualification, get your degree and, and then you world your oyster. But not forgetting on the other side of things that university opens up a lot of opportunities you know, you can play sport there and do everything. And it, it you get to meet a lot of people. It, it wasn't a massive jump for me because I'd already been living away from home since I was 11 anyway. So going away to school and university, it wasn't, it wasn't a massive jump. But one of the universities I chose uh, in Sheffield in England had an exchange program. Uh, I've always been interested in playing American football. So I played rugby through school. Always had a huge interest in American football, but the uh, the exchange program allowed me to get to university in the States. So I did my first year in England, managed to get on the exchange program, and ended up at the University of North Texas. So I went out there with a goal, possibly even playing American football out there. I'd, I'd played for Great Britain students, Great Britain universities. So kind of a bit of a leap of faith. So... Thinking back on it now, you know, I try to be a professional cricketer. Then I had this dream or kind of vision about going to university in the States and playing American football out there after only having played a little bit. But yeah, leap of faith. Went out there, tried out for the team, kind of made the team, uh, only to be told that because I was an exchange student, I wasn't allowed to play. I'd have to fully transfer to go and play American football out there. And it was like, well, I've done all this. I can't commit to playing, you know, transferring my degree and, and making the move out there. So ended up, didn't play American football, I ended up playing rugby in Texas and had an absolute ball out there because, you know, I was 19. I legally, I wasn't allowed to drink. So um, joined the rugby club and that kind of got me around the, um, yeah, the loose drinking laws over there. So I had a ball, played rugby out there. Um, but... Went back to Britain, still played a bit of cricket after I finished in Texas. Ended up coming to Australia as part of my degree. Worked in Brisbane at the MARTA Hospital there as a projects advisor. Um, and managed to kind of do a deal where I'd go back to Britain, finish off my degree. But they'd, this club, Bean Lee, sponsored me to come out and play cricket. So when I finished my degree, I played a bit of league cricket over there. But as soon as it was Australian summer... I got sponsored to come out and play cricket. So that was 1996. So it was when I told people as a Welshman that an Australian club sponsored me to come and play cricket, they kind of looked, the Wales even play cricket? It's like, well, some of us do. Um, so yeah, in 1996, at the age of, how old was I then, 22, I upped and left Wales and moved to Australia. And I kind of stayed here ever since. It was uh, the lifestyle and everything else and the opportunity um just prevailed and yeah it's just a big big change of lifestyle but 
nothing kind of held me back. Like I said, I, I wanted to be a professional sports and that got the, the barrier was there. I had to stop. Uh, went to the States to play American football in university. Yeah, a massive change. Went to Australia, but at the age of 22, that's it. Throw my life in and uh, decide to try something different. You never looked back. Never looked back. Yeah, and that's I guess that's one of the one of the things that uh, that I've constantly done is you know have no regrets. If you if you believe in something, if you think something's good for you, then go and do it. It's uh, one of the ethoses for me is you know is don't have any regrets. And if if hindsight is obviously you know, is the great thing. But the regrets you have by not doing things probably far greater outweigh the kind of the pain and torture sometimes of actually doing something. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of what ifs and what could have been. But at the end of the day, if, if you don't try things, then you're never going to learn. So sticking to theme around resilience and inner strength, how has that actually changed you? I mean, you've, um, you know, I know you've, you've changed careers a couple of times, uh, going from being a cricketer to wanting to play American football, rugby, and then back to cricket again, moving to Australia. There's a series of things there at the young age of 22 to be throwing yourself in the deep end. It's great that you were exposed to living on your own and independence at such a young age, but coming out here, I know a, a whole new life started for you. Tell me about that. Yeah, definitely. So obviously I came out here with a view to play cricket, but I also had a business degree. So came out here looking for work, opportunity, um, different lifestyles. So obviously I threw myself into the business world um, and kind of did a few jobs. But I ended up, I mean, one of the changing points in my life was I got a job with the MADA Hospital as their as a fundraising coordinator. So I looked after obviously the children's hospital and you know, kids with cancer and, and, and projects like that. But that kind of gave me an insight about learning how to essentially sell nothing but goodwill. Um, so you built really, really strong relationships. Um, but you also get a lot of knockbacks, you know, because essentially you're selling nothing. You're selling nothing but trying to help sick kids. But that's a bit of, that's a, it's a good learning curve for people about trying to build relationships because you know you 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 actually lose a lot more than you win but the wins are are very very good and very very rewarding um but in terms of resilience all that going on it kind of i don't know it kind of put me in a in a very strange place and in fact i'd actually kind of had enough of australia weirdly enough and i actually had a kind of determination to go back home i was still playing cricket to a fairly decent level so I took the leap of faith where I decided seven years on the Gold Coast in Brisbane. Yeah, I'd, I'd done my time and I thought it's time to go back. So I actually got myself a, a contract to go back to the UK and play cricket because, yep, I hadn't quite made enough money. And the only way I could get back uh, and doing it economically was to get sponsored again or get paid to go back and play. So I signed a two-year contract to go and play cricket back in the UK. And after the first year, I had a great season. But it literally in the last two weeks of the year... Um, I tore both my groins. So I decided to come back to Australia, do a bit of time, get rehabbed, um, and then go back. Um, so doing seven years in Brisbane, I decided Melbourne is the place for me. Obviously, I'd seen Melbourne being sport, sport, sport. I thought, yeah, I'm going to fit in there. There's no problem. 
So I moved to Melbourne, um, decided that, um, yep, I'll get rehabbed here. I'll go back to the UK and we'll work out from there. So in the meantime, I did meet someone um, and, yeah, moved in with them in Melbourne. And we did end up getting married, which is quite amazing. But I did the first three months of rehab, but I effectively I couldn't find a job. Um, and without decent money, you can't find decent physios. So my groins never got fixed, but I did end up finding a job. And weirdly enough, it was in the synthetic grass world or sports facilities. Um, and after about three months, I had to make a decision. And this is the real sliding doors moment. I had to make a decision whether do I want to play cricket for the rest of my life or and make no money but have a good time, or do I actually want to make a mark in the business world? Um, yeah, and I chose relationship and business instead of um, drifting around the world playing cricket and not making any money. So, uh, yeah, that was the, the walk away moment of um, not playing sport anymore. So, yeah, ended up in synthetic grass. Um, we built tennis courts and soccer pitches and hockey fields and all sorts and did loads of stuff for schools. And it was brilliant. So, so I did the first year with a company. Then I set up my own company and we actually manufactured in Australia. I've never really ran my own business before, especially a manufacturing business. So, so we did that for five, six years. And unfortunately, you know, I'm in a $15,000 a month factory. I've got eight staff um, and a fairly unforgiving landlord. And there was a few things going on. We were trying to get bought out by a company. Uh, but when you're not selling any grass and there's no income coming in, all of a sudden, nothing. So... We had to close. We liquidated the company and everything else. I went to move on for something else. But in the meantime, when there's no income coming in, my relationship broke down as well. Uh, we just had a three-year-old uh, baby at that time, but the, the relationship became untenable because just everything fought, fell apart. And when I mean everything, I mean everything fell apart. Like I said, no income. Uh, you know, you've got clients that are jumping up and down and just things went wrong. Um, people weren't paying their bills. And for me, it got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. Every, like I said, relationship fell down, business fell down, money's gone, prospects are not looking good. And that slippery slope happened very, very quickly for me. And yeah, it got to a point where I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And I'm, when I say I don't want to be a part of it, um, yeah, I actually got to a point where, you know, I wanted to take my own life. Um, and from there, it was a very, very yeah, pretty dark time. Um, but moving out of that, and it's not necessarily family, but it, it, it is the people around you that help you through that. Um, you know, I made a lot of good friends in Melbourne, and, you know, through business associates and people like that. People kind of rally behind when they realize you've hit rock bottom. You know, they're trying to help you. And I think one lesson of, of what I went through is you need to surround yourself with good people, you know, and good people that, that want to be involved for the right reasons. It's not um, people that kind of want to associate with yourself for, you know, the good times only. It's uh, unfortunately, we, we all go up and down nowadays. And it's, uh, yeah, we, we live a very, very different lifestyle than 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 we did 10 years ago, which is a, amazing to think about. But in terms of that, yeah, it's uh, it doesn't get much lower than that. But, you know, you, you can bounce back. And 
you know, we've talked about a few times that, you know, I've kind of managed to bounce back and bounce back and bounce back. And yeah, like I said, the resilience side of things is, is whether that's from being involved in the sports world, I, I don't know. It's one of those things you, you can't, you don't have an inner understanding of, you know, what makes people different really, you know, it's whether it's dopamine, whether it's anything else, I, I don't know, adrenaline, but yeah, it's been the ability to bounce back and, and, and keep moving forward and, and not thinking about, you know, the, the hindsight thing, I suppose, and thinking about what if and what could have been, I suppose it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't like, yeah, I don't like to think about that those times. It's, um, yeah, it's difficult. From a mindset perspective, it's all encompassing, isn't it? When you've been an athlete before and you know how hard you have to train, how much work and commitment goes behind performing at your best on game day, you know what it's all about. It is all about hard work and persevering. So, yeah, there's no doubt that that's all, you know, you were brought up in a family that was all about making sure that you gave it your all. But um, I want to... I want to get a bit of an understanding of how you actually, you know, when you were at the fork of fork in the road, you had two pulled groins that didn't look like you had a lot of time to recover. Um, you were deciding on whether you were going to play cricket for the rest of your life or whether you were going to pursue relationship and business. How did you make that decision? Like what was the thought process and the, I guess the, the breakdown of where you landed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's to do with investment in yourself. Um, you know, I, I went to university for a reason. I went to university to learn about, you know, I did business studies at, at university. So the, the, the decision for me was, you know, you, I'd already been through getting injured, playing cricket at 18, thinking, you know, I could have been, you know, somebody that may have gone on to bigger honours, you know, perhaps been on the international stage, I don't know, but it only takes something to go wrong to have everything taken away from you. So I think the decision that I came to was I was in a relationship. Yes, you know, we all want to stand up and start a family. Um, I just got a, a job which I kind of really wanted to be involved in. It was a job in sport. Great. Um, or, you know, at the age of 30, I could have kicked around the cricket world for a while and seen the world, but not get paid a huge amount, but enjoyed myself. But I think what, what weighed up in my favour was, yeah, it was time to get a proper job. It was time to do something for myself. It was time to probably even settle down, I guess. And uh, like I said, start a family, have a relationship, get married, do all that sort of thing. So in the end, you know, fun time beefy was probably out the window and, uh, uh, more responsible beefy was uh, was was born at the age of whatever it was when was that 2005 so 31 finally I finally came to my senses it's a big one isn't it adulting realizing <laughs> that, oh my god I have to be an adult now <laughs> yeah definitely was but I mean but I still again moved halfway around the world you know I've lived in Brisbane for seven years I decided to to move to Melbourne and change things a little bit. I'm, I'm still in Melbourne now, so that's a good sign. Um, I did mention, I mean, the, the relationship did break down with the with the breakdown of the business. But um, from there, you know, I did, I've got, I've got a job in the same industry, um, which kind of set me up uh, uh, as well, that I could maintain my position in the industry. I could still make fairly decent money. Um, but I mean, we'll get onto it in a minute. I, I kind of, when all that happened, call that a midlife crisis, call it whatever. Um, 
I decided that, you know, the, the regret side of things got the better of me again after the business shut down, after I got through the, um, those dark times, that I had a project in mind that I thought if I didn't do it, I would regret it for the rest of my life. So I kind of the progression of the stages, the development of myself kind of, I was going to say forced me and nothing ever forced me to do anything, but it kind of pushed me in that direction. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, the more we talk about this bounce back ability, it's kind of, I'm thinking, yeah, I really have bounced around. It's kind of crazy what I've done. It's stupid. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was the, um, the sliding doors moment is adult beefy decided that, um, that this was where I wanted to be. Yeah. Now, before we move on to the exciting project that catapulted you into the World Guinness Records, um, yep. talk about no regrets, right? And no regrets is a big thing and it's a great philosophy to, to live by, which is, you know, I think it's really strong of you to look back in hindsight and think, yep, no regrets. But, you know, with the, the breakdown of your marriage, you know, a new baby or a three-year-old toddler, um, the business yep. going down, in hindsight, do you think you could have done things differently? I think you can always do things differently. I, you know, you you can you could probably think about things a little bit more clearer, a little bit more uh, logically. But at the end of the day, you can't change the past. You know, it's it's one thing to have belief in yourself and your ability and what you're about and how you go about things and you know the ethos of life and and what you make of things. But look. The only thing you can do, and talking about hindsight and everything else, is learn from your mistakes uh, and, and about how you would do things differently if you're in that situation again. Um, you know, I learned a lot from building relationships and sales relationships with people raising money for, for a kid's hospital. So, you know, you have to build on those experiences and build on how you, you nurture relationships, especially in the business world. Um, but, and that can carry through to everything you do in life, I guess. But, you know, would, would, if you get the chance to do things again, you know, how would you want to do things? And I guess my belief was that I needed to do things that were right for me um, because there's no point in flogging yourself and doing things for something you don't enjoy. And, you know, that could be business, that could be relationships as well. I mean, because at the end of the day, if you're not happy in a relationship, Jeez, you don't need to put yourself through that, you know, that pain and hassle. And yeah, it's a hard one. I know it's difficult because, you know, we all do things that we think are, we do it for the right reasons. But when it doesn't pan out, realistically, don't spend time um, procrastinating about things because everyone needs to be happy, you know, at the end of the day. And if, if you're not happy, there's no point in wasting time and, and thinking things will come right or, you know, thinking you can work things, you know, uh, uh, you know I'm being very general in what I'm saying, but the, life's too short to be, you know, disappointed, unhappy um, and regretful, really. It's, you know, it's you really, from, you know, from my own end, um, I think I've probably done the right things in being able to change um, and move on and, and not really think about what could have been because, you know, there are days, especially with cricket, you know, I see people making millions of dollars. They're playing in the Indian Premier League short form cricket, which is kind of my game. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, if I had my time, if I was 10 years a bit later on, yeah, I probably would have been there. But, you know, that goes without saying. But 
you can't you can't let that get you down really because the more you think about regrets and stuff the more it does play you know play on your mind and and really you know we're, we're going to talk about mental health and everything else in it and that's becoming more and more prominent the fact that I think if you start thinking about you know what could have been or what anyone else is doing and how somebody else has got a better car than you then you know, it's just going to weigh on your mind and, and you just get bogged down in it, really. Instead of living your own life, you're trying to live life to other people's expectations. And I don't think that's a good thing for any, anyone. Look, I can't imagine it being a, a particularly easy decision to make. So when I ask you whether you had any, um, if you could have done things differently, it's not so much about the decision that you made overnight. It, it probably would have taken many months and, and many inward conversations with yourself and with you, your mates just to say, hey, is it actually the right thing? Yeah. I'm really unhappy, no doubt, because the only thing I'm concerned about is with people who um, take on that philosophy, no regrets, you know, if I'm not happy, move on. Some people make those decisions quite hastily and then end up living with yeah. regret. So it's yep. you are, have been thriving since making those decisions and making those changes, which kind of takes us to the, the next exciting sort of project that you embarked on, something that you've been thinking about for a long time that you ended up kicking off. So tell us all about 365 Days of Sport. Yeah, it's a strange one. It really is. Um, so way back, when I first moved to Brisbane, I ended up playing football with a local club there. Um, a lot of British guys played football and obviously after the games, we'd go into the city and have a drink or two. And um, one night we are just there talking about sports and different sports. And the conversation kind of went from, you know, how many sports do you think there are? Um, and then it kind of moved on. Or how many sports do you think you could go and see? And if you did this and did that, well, the more I kind of thought about that idea, the more, it kind of grew in my mind and I'm thinking this is a bloody good idea. Um, and, you know, I talked about it with a few mates and, and that core three or four guys, you know, they wouldn't take it seriously, but if anyone was going to even contemplate doing something like this, it was going to be me. So that idea grew. I think the original idea was 365 days of sport, 365 days of beer where, you know, you go and watch a sport, you drink the local brew, um, and I kind of think of this, yeah, this is a good idea. I'd like it. Um, and I kind of, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, one day I'll probably go and do it and might write a book or something and go from there. And no joke for about 12, 13, 14 years, I reckon I told five to 10 people. I kept it so quiet because the idea of mine was just, this is bloody great. But if I tell people, somebody's going to go and do it and really, if somebody's going to go and do it, it's going to be me. It really is. So obviously I went through the business side of things. I went through some dark times. Um, I kind of reestablished myself. And it got to a point where, you know, late 30s and this idea had grown. And it had grown and grown in my mind. And I was thinking if there was a time when I was ever going to do it, I'm going to have to do it, kind of make a decision to do it. And, you know, we talk about sliding doors moments and that instant where you know it's time my marriage breakdown everything else uh moving out finding you know trying to find a place to live when you're about 35 36 is quite harrowing sometimes because you know you haven't got a lot of money the reality is especially in melbourne and you know i mean i know you're in sydney but um house prices and rental prices are ridiculous so 
you know, being at the age of 35, 36, trying to find a share house, um, I mean, that's another story. Yeah. But, I mean, I kind of got a little bit lucky, I suppose. So I moved into a place, um, and because I was on my own, spending a bit of time, I really then decided that 365 days of sport was something I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, whether it was a midlife crisis, but it also trying to do something to take my mind off what was also going on. Because what also found and what I find kind of recently, especially COVID times, is you've got to keep your mind busy because we start thinking about regrets and jealousies and everything else and what could have been. Um, if you don't keep your mind busy or, or occupied or, or um, you know, just you have a tendency to either drop into drinking or something along those lines that's probably not good for you. So, I mean, I mean, we talk about the mental health side of things. I, th I think having an end goal or something to work towards or, or keeping your mind occupied and developing something outside of what you're doing is, is vitally important. So whether that's playing sport on the weekend or whether that's, you know, doing whatever, but just being able to compartmentalize yourself about doing different things and not getting bogged down and stuff is very, very important. Um, anyway, 365 days of sport ended up being a concept where it was to go and see 365 different sports in the space of 365 days, no matter where they were on the planet. So it took me three years of planning outside of my work to kind of work on a schedule, even just to, to work out if there were 365 different sports. So I just manually started building lists of sports, um, working out where certain events were. Um, and I, I say it took three years. By the time I kind of put in preliminary schedules in place, by the time I came back to them, what I found out was those schedules have changed, the venues have changed, you know, they've moved, um, moved events to certain places so it was a kind of a, it was like a washing machine of trying to put things in place and work out where I could go and, and what happened and along along that way when I was planning this um, the person I was living with in, in the share flat had moved out and you know we had to get a, a replacement in and and a guy called Rob who was a Kiwi he moved in and, and it turned out that he was in He'd been in bands. He was studying script writing and screenwriting and wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And, you know, we, we got on like a house on fire. It was great. Um, and as this 365 Days of Sport idea developed in my mind, like I said, I was probably going to go and do it and write a book. But it kind of worked out that if I was going to make this a bit more tangible, perhaps we should turn it into a TV show. You know, film the sports, do some weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and and see if we can get some sponsorship and go along the way. And who knows what could happen. But to make it visual, it was just, I suppose that was the natural progression of everything. So, yeah, we kind of embarked on this mad plan to go and see 365 different sports in 365 days. Um, yeah, we put it in place. We started in October 2015. And amazingly, without a huge amount of sponsorship, you know, I think both myself and Rob, after doing six months on the road all over the world, kind of ran out of money. 
Um, so really? another. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Coming. Um, yeah. So through that, but the first six months was absolutely unbelievable. You know, we we were doing we did Channel Nine and Channel Seven over here, the BBC. We were on TV in New Zealand. Um, people were just the media stuff was unbelievable. Like people just were, were jumping on what we were doing, and uh, it was the number of doors that got opened up. And what opened my eyes up? One of the first events we saw was the Melbourne Cup down here, and you know we applied for media accreditation to go to the Melbourne Cup and cover it. And the people that did the media accreditation were came back to us and said, this is awesome. You know, what, you, what you're planning to do, come and do media, come and do what you want to do and, and see what you can do. So they opened the doors. You know, we were interviewing top trainers, horse trainers from around the world. Um, and they just gave us open access. And, and from my side of things, anyway, it was like, well, this is going to be quite special. We, we can actually get some decent access to decent people. Um, and from there, I think the whole, my vision of this whole project kind of opened up. And um, yeah, we, we really just, we pushed the envelope, put it that way. Um, you know, we, we got, we were, became Olympic accredited journalists. We went to the Winter Youth Olympics in Norway. Um, wow. We went to the... We went to the Eskimo Olympics in Greenland, which was quite unreal. But, um, yeah, it, it, the doors opened up. And, I mean, one of the most famous things that people see with 365 days of sport, um, we went to the Formula One in Abu Dhabi. And we – you can't get tickets for the Formula One in Abu Dhabi because it's – as soon as tickets go on sale, especially in the UAE, all the corporates snap up every ticket. So they don't actually get sold over there. So we were trying to get, well, look, I live my life by getting free tickets for everything. You know, I don't want to pay for any, any sporting events. So um, we had a few contacts at Red Bull. So we tried to get free tickets to the event through Red Bull. Um, and it kind of didn't happen. And we ended up meeting a few people. I had friends that worked for Etihad in, in the UAE, and they kind of sort of saved with tickets. But this is how unbelievable this whole project and how it developed and, and the things that fell into our lap. The second lap of the Formula One race, Rob gets a text from Red Bull Racing saying, your interview with Daniel Ricciardo is confirmed for 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. And it was like, what, what interview? What? Yeah. It was literally a text message two laps into the race. And we're thinking, you know, I've got to go and interview Daniel Ricciardo tomorrow. It's like, you know, and just that type of thing has happened all the way through. Um, when we did 365 days for it was it was mad and wow. so yeah we went to we went to meet Daniel Ricardo at the hotel <laughs> we interviewed him I sat by a pool and I'd, I'd really never interviewed anyone of that level on a on a level that I'm supposed to be a you know um, a, a journalist that you could take seriously and we had a we fair credit to to Daniel we had an absolute ball with him he was very open to doing stuff um what got me was we sat by this pool and we kind of set up and, you know, we've got a little Canon camera. I mean, it was fairly good for what we wanted to do. We set up, you know, and all of a sudden there's like 10 people watching this interview. And by the time we this interview, there's like a hundred people watching me interview Danny Ricardo. And it's like, yeah, I don't know what we got into, but from there, it just gave us a bit of kudos. 
you ended up traveling the world, not for sport, but for watching sport. You happen to be traveling the world, just doing what you love. (laughs) How incredible is that? So how many countries did you end up getting around to? So I said, well, kind of Rob stopped after six months. So when we kind of run out of money, I kind of finished it off myself. Just I did my own thing, took photos and, and whatever. So I think at the end it's 31 countries. We did 122 flights, or I did 122 flights, 31 airlines. Um, I think the final count is 480,000 kilometers was traveled in that year. Um, and, you know, the majority of that was, it was, you know, six to seven months, unfortunately. It was, uh, um, yeah, I, I'd hate to think if we'd have managed to go the 12 months, what we would have done because it was, uh, uh, yeah, we were just jumping on planes left, right, and center. And, you know, what you've got to, remember is they don't play sport at the airports you know you get to the airport you've got to go somewhere else to go and see the event and and the amount of contacts and and everything that just the organization trying to get that done in the end I think back it's it's kind of ridiculous what was your favorite sport to watch <laughs> I feel like this is um, an obvious question <laughs> well no like I you know I think you're probably the other way around you I loved everything, uh, but there were a couple of sports where it was just the most boring thing of all time. There's a sport called barrel racing in Texas where you get on a horse and you kind of do a figure eight around barrels and that's it. The The event lasts for about 15 seconds, um, but there are – they call barrel racing the national sport of Texas, and there are hundreds of these horses lined up to do this little figure eight course. And once you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all. So, you know, uh, barrel racing is not at the top of my list for excitement, put it that way. But I'll let you into probably, I suppose, one of the most different sports we saw was jousting. Now, this is a sport that died out in kind of the 1600s. But there are people out in this world that dress up in full suits of armor, jump on horses and try and kill each other. And they are still doing this in, in, you know, in the 2000s. Where in the world was it? Well, this was in Texas as well, weirdly enough. But I've since been involved in the jousting world. And they had the world championships down here in um, just in Warrigal in Victoria, which we went down, we were guests of. Um, We've kind of got to know a few of the big hitters in the jousting world. And it is quite amazing. But we managed, we just got very, very lucky on the day that we were in Texas we met this guy called Charlie Andrews, who calls himself the unofficial world jousting champion. And this is a guy that is larger than life itself. He kind of, his statement to us when we were chatting to him was, you know, people like to live their lives by um, bumper stickers and t-shirt slogans. He says, but, but you, my friend, that is the foundation of my DNA. So he was, absolutely brilliant we i mean we filmed him a lot we've got to know him quite well it's just brilliant the mentality of this guy is he was i mean i think he's probably a little bit older than me but he was training for a mma fight a ufc fight and just in training his mentality of never say die and you know i'm gonna win he got into a hold where somebody was kind of putting pressure on his leg and instead of tapping out and remember this isn't a fight this is training Instead of tapping out, the guy snapped his leg in half because he wouldn't give up. So both through the tibia and fibia, 
he broke both his both bones in his leg because he wouldn't tap out in training. That's how mental this guy is. It was he sounds yeah. crazy. Oh my goodness. That's hey, yeah, he crazy. kudos to him for <laughs> yes. So yeah, Jason. I'm a I'm a big Jason fan. I've got to love Jason, and and it was something I'd never ever thought I'd see. And I kind of when we were driving into the event in Texas, I think Rob thought he he'd never really seen it before. He kind of thought it was kind of a like a WWE wrestling star where it's a bit choreographed and you know they'd run at each other um, and they'd fall off the horse, whatever. But now these guys are out to kill each other. It's it's madness. Their suits of armor weigh 55 kilos. Is it actually to the death? (laughs) Near enough. No, you've just got to basically knock each other off off your horses. Um, So, but these guys go through huge amounts. It sounds barbaric. It really is barbaric. And like I said, um, there's a reason why it died out in the 16 and 1700s. (laughs) Because it's just infinity. But, you know, those people... Each to their own. That's all I got to say. I'd love to. I'd love to understand how they managed to get it through as a legitimate sport. Do you know what? That's a very good question. Um, I guess. I guess they just <laughs> they get to do what they want to do. It's. Uh, I guess there's there's risks with every sport. Um, actually, well, I'll I'll go back to um, mention risks and stuff. So we. Because we try to do something a little bit different, we actually made a show, a little web show about every sport we saw. We did for the first 100 sports anyway. Um, I grew this ridiculously huge beard. We rated every sport on their beard rating, hence why I grew a beard. And Rob brought in this chance of death rating. So it was basically the the, the likelihood of you dying <laughs> whilst playing this sport. Yes. Um, so dancing was way up there. It was ridiculous. But, um, yeah, I mean, we try to do something different. It was just as a, yeah, something just a little bit weird. Yeah, very creative. Okay, so out of all the countries that you landed in, 31 countries and, you know, the the gazillion sports you were able to watch, uh, where was the most obscure sport you were able to see? Yeah, we, I mentioned Greenland. We ended up in Greenland for the Eskimo Olympics now. To qualify for the Eskimo Olympics, or they actually call it the Arctic Winter Games, you have to live above 66 degrees. So you basically have to live in the Arctic Circle. So um, northern Alberta, Alaska, parts of Russia, Finland, obviously Greenland, a lot of provinces in in Canada. So every three years, they all come together and they play these traditional Inuit sports. Um, Things like stick pull. they used to do ear pulling, but that got banned because somebody had his ear ripped off. What? They do this thing called, <laughs> yeah, you check out the videos of ear pulling. They also do this thing called finger pull, um, where you basically lock fingers and you basically got to try and pull them apart. Now, the Greenlandic prime minister, no joke, he has his middle finger, he had his f- middle finger amputated through a finger pull injury because we talk about resilience he wouldn't let go and the blood supply got cut off in his finger so the finger died so the greenlandic prime minister no joke has had his finger amputated due to a finger pull injury mm-hmm. now is that the man you want as prime minister yes. of course it is yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to stand up for you no worries oh my goodness 
so Greenland, Greenland was brilliant. We got caught in blizzards there and, you know, we got delayed getting in. We got delayed getting out. We had a, we, we, the, the people there involved with it were, were brilliant, but we saw some great sports there. Some, I'm going to tell you, we, this is a sport we didn't see because they, well, the day we got there, the blizzards, everyone was affected, but they do a sport called snow snake. Now, a lot of their sports are derived from living on the land. Now, snow snake is effectively throwing a javelin like along the ice. Now, how that sport has come into being is obviously if you live in the Arctic Circle, a lot of your food supply is, is seals, basically. Um, so what they do is they cut a hole in the, the ice, they bang on the ice and the seals decide, oh, what's going on? So as their head comes up through the hole, they get the javelin and that's how they kill the seals. So that's how that sport developed about throwing these javelins along the ice and they've called it snow snake. So, yeah. I'm learning There's lots of other <laughs> And I'm going yes. to be YouTubing a whole bunch of all of these sports just to get a bit of an idea. So ear pulling, finger throwing and snake spearing. Yeah. Uh, snow snake is the sport. Yeah. But uh, we had a ball there. We really did. It's um yeah, it's very, very different. And traditional Inuit sports, and I found out of them totally by accident. I went for a, I went for a meal with a Canadian couple one night in, in Melbourne here, and obviously any conversation leading up to this always reverted to sports and, you know, whether I'd found sports like this. And the, the girl said, oh, we learned all these Inuit sports in, in school. Um, you know, have you got those? And it was like, what Inuit sports? And all of a sudden, you know, we booked we were booked to go to Greenland. We found out about the Arctic Winter Games and we were there. So how did you manage to get tickets to get there? Um you mentioned there was a couple of sponsors, but you didn't have enough because you ran out of money. Um yeah. how, how did you manage to to pull in the funds? Just through saving work. Um like, like I said, there was a few sponsors. Uh we had a few donations along the way. Whatever, whatever it had, I sold a load of stuff to make sure it got funded. Yeah, everything. Just when I made that decision to kind of do it, it was like I've got a certain amount of money to seed fund this and make sure and hopefully we'll get some sponsorship along the way. You actually did it. You finally did it. You talked about it for years and you finally pulled your finger out, stopped procrastinating and decided to take a leap. Yeah. The original start date was going to be in August that year. And the finish date was going to be the closing ceremony at Rio because it was the Olympics in 2016. So I thought, yeah, we'll finish this in Rio. This will be brilliant. What a finish. Great. Um, and because of the money side of things, we, I delayed it by two months. But at the end of the, that whole 12 months, I ended up seeing 306 different sports. I, with about a week to go, Guinness contacted me saying, we've been told that you're doing this. And it was like, well, yeah. And we've seen your website. We've seen the schedule. You know, there may be a possibility we can, there, there'll be a world record in this. And it was like, well, how am I going to, what kind of world record is going to be this? And so there was a bit of negotiations with Guinness and, and world records. And in the end, I got a world record and I am officially the world's biggest sports fan. Congratulations. <laughs> It wasn't something that I ever thought would happen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just out the blue. And then we went back and forth. I had to said, oh, look, even though, even though those guys contacted me, I had to supply them all with, this is a good tip for anyone, 
all photos on your phone now come with, make sure your location settings are turned on because um, the, the geotagged photos actually helped me confirm where I was at the time. Um, so even though all my stuff was on social media, I had to send them the photos and they could check the geotagging on the photos to make sure I was in Greenland or I was in Japan for the sumo or whatever. So those tags actually helped Guinness confirm where I was. So yeah, it, just along the way. So I am, yeah, officially the world's biggest sports fan. As very recognized cool. by the Guinness very, very cool. <laughs> Congratulations. All right, so I feel like when you spoke about that project and the couple of years after the project, it's probably been the best years of your life by the sounds of it. Yeah, wouldn't have been something that I even thought about. Um, I'd thought about it, but whether or not I was had the balls to actually go and do it, I've been able to create a lifestyle off the back of that as well um, by doing this and having, you know, the, the actual commitment to go and do it, like you say, is I managed off the back of that to get myself medium work. There's a, there's a sports radio station in Melbourne that I managed to get involved with because, you know, anytime there was the world wife carrying championships on in, in Finland, they'd be ringing me up and saying, oh, beefy, you know, you know, it's the wife carrying championships. What do you know about it? What's happening? And I was able to go and talk about all the sports that don't get any media coverage. So I'd already been doing guest spots on that station and, and talking to them about different things. So in the end, they just invited me on, said, you know, come and do this every week. Talk about what sports are going on. Um, you know, I've got a background in, in football and rugby and everything, so I could talk about that all day long. But they wanted to know about um, you know, freestyle skiing. They wanted to know what the Australians were doing because these are the sports that never got covered by media. So I came in once a week, went through the week's sporting results, how the Aussies are doing, you know, talking about people like Steve Bradbury and short track speed skating and, and all these weird and wonderful stuff. And all of a sudden it created this um, following about people wanted to know about minority sports. And Throughout 365 days of sport, we always said there is a sport out there for everyone. Actually, I've got to tell you a story. When we talk about that phrase, there is nothing more um, synonymous than there is a sport out there for everyone. We had the ABC came out with us with about a couple of weeks to go. ABC followed us for a day in, in Melbourne. The first sport we saw that day was dancing with dogs. What? Dancing. <laughs> if you've got a dog... And you want to dress up in a costume and dress your dog up in a costume, then do a dance routine with your dog, then that is the sport for you. They're definitely not taking the mickey, right? This isn't. I am not taking the mickey. There is genuinely a sport called Dancing with Dogs and it happens. So we finished in October 2016. And ever since then, I've been involved in radio and we do the 365 days of sport. You definitely found your niche. Let's talk about your the mental health side of things. So you've gone yeah. from having a little bit of a, a darker period of your life and you found joy and a sense of purpose again with the, the focus of sport and have subsequently become a bit of a celebrity in your niche sport interest, the minority sports, as you mentioned. How has that helped with your mental health? I think what you, you've just the phrase you just used is absolute spot on sense of purpose. You need to fulfill 
what you want to do. You need to you need to be in a comfortable position. Uh, you know, it's and that mental health side of things is, is becoming vitally important. It's going to get to a stage where through schools we're going to have to actually teach mental health and being able to prepare yourself for life after school and and how the human body as it is right now is just not equipped to deal with it. There are, there's a there's a project called the Resilience Project down in Melbourne. It's been going out to schools and, and wanting to incorporate resilience to mental health and being aware of certain triggers um, into the curriculum. So I think, you know, yeah. the, the change is happening and, you know, with mental health, especially on the back of COVID, it's, it's defi- definitely becoming more prevalent in our conversations and making sure that we're checking in with people. That's not just a, a very... Um, a very plastic check-in. It's a bit more of how are you feeling? It has been, you know, a rough couple of years or a couple of months or, you know, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And kind of getting into the crux of things. So it's no more of that um, glazing it over with a glass of wine or, you know, talking, having, having alcohol as your way of an outlet anymore. It's really just kind of owning it. And, and again, like to your point, making conscious decisions around, am I actually happy? Am I doing things to make, make it good for me? doing the right thing by me and, you know, looking after number one, which is you before you can really start thinking about other people. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of a stigma about, you know, blokes asking their mates if they're okay. And, you know, I've done it. I mean, I've been there. So, you know, regularly I will ring my mates up wherever they are and just, you know, have a chat and be open with them. And yeah. And for blokes being open with each other is it's been a long time coming. That's for sure. And, and, I think the people that with are you okay? And I know there's been, you know, I think people taking their own lives has really opened people's eyes about really being able to talk to people and, and make sure your mates are okay. Because I mean, I've had a, I've, I've known a few of, of our mates that have, have taken their own lives, and you would have thought they were the probably the happiest people going around. And all of a sudden, but you know, behind closed doors, obviously different things going on everything else so the ability for people just to talk to each other and actually you know ask that question is becoming more and more important and I, I did mention earlier about surrounding yourself with with good people that is absolutely invaluable nowadays and oh good on you thank you I just have one more question that I feel I need to ask um being a Brit and being an Aussie how many yep. liters of beer did you manage to consume over that 365 days of sport well i've got a huge confession for you um i always got my cricket contracts because i was fantastic in the bar i was a great man i'd lead the singing i'd be up there on tables even though i was unfortunately i suffered from gout i got my first um episode of gout when i was 24 20 about two weeks before we started 365 days of sport i was getting to a point where every time i had a drink I got gout. We talk about the sliding doors moments. And from that moment, I've gone cold turkey. So from about the first week in October 2015, I do not drink anymore. I, I've not, I didn't actually manage to drink anything. And I've been oh, good. Shame. Um, shame. <laughs> <laughs> no, good on you, Beefy. You are a legend. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Such a pleasure. Oh, no problem, Linda. I, I really enjoy it. I, I love telling people about it. And I've just got to say, if, if you go to the 365 Days of Sport Facebook page, the pinned post there is a TV show we've made as a pilot. So if you want to see some of our antics on 365 Days of Sport, it is there on the Facebook page. 
And you will also meet my favorite jester in the world, Charlie Andrews. So he's a big part of that show. So 365 Days of Sport. We're on all our shows are on YouTube as well. So we did a hundred odd shows of all the sports we saw. We had an absolute ball. Definitely. I mean, we do the radio show as well. 365 Days of Sport radio show. We do a podcast every week. Um, the lighter side of sport and life, basically. No problem, Linda. All the best. And thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Thank you again. And I'll speak to you again soon. No Enjoy your weekend. Excellent. Look after Bye. yourself. Thanks, Linda. Bye-bye. This was hosted by my mum, Linda Crisoglu. Stay tuned for next week's episode of People Are Amazing, the podcast.